0: We are finishing up my portion of this study. Brother Gene is going to teach the class next week. And then uh, the week after that, we will have a singing night. So this will be my last time to teach. We appreciate the good uh, attention and participation we've had during these classes on the life of Christ. And we left off last week discussing the, uh, the death and the burial of Christ, all that surrounded that. So... Uh, we left the door open for us to get into a discussion of the resurrection of Christ, and that's where we spend our time this evening. As time permits, as we complete that, if we complete that, uh, we'll just say a little bit about his his role today, and I believe Brother Gene's going to talk about that some more. You're talking about the church next, is that correct? Next quarter. So we'll let him get into that in a little more detail in there, but let's talk about the resurrection. In the New Testament, of course, the New Testament was not originally written written in verse style, like verse and chapter style, like we have it now. But as it's broken down now, we have 184 passages in the New Testament that have reference to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, 21 of them have something to say about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So obviously it's a significant uh, teaching, a significant doctrine, a significant truth. I Don't talk about the story of the resurrection because I'm hesitant to use the word story because it tends to make people think of something That's been fabricated. Let's talk about the truth of the resurrection that which actually occurred And let's talk about why this is important. First of all, this is Really the crux of Christianity. There is no earthly religion that compares to the religion of our Lord uh, to the faith of our Lord there is nothing all the other leaders or so-called saviors or deliverers of the different religions in the world have died, and they've stayed dead. Our Savior died, and he rose again. This is the crux of Christianity. Alfred Edersheim, who wrote a great book sometime if you need a good read, it's, it's about that thick, but it's a great history book. It's called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim, great book. He said, a dead Christ might have been a teacher and wonder worker, And remembered and loved as such but only a risen and living Christ could be the Savior the life and the life giver so as we begin let's just point out what we're talking about here we're talking about the fact that while some even in Jesus day in John chapter 7 for instance when he was here in the flesh and some said he's a good man and there are those today who say well he is a good man even even Islam says he was a prophet but that's as far as they'll go We need to go farther than that and we'll see why in just a little bit edward wharton wrote this he said if jesus was raised from the dead his claims are true and he is the lord if not the historical jesus who claimed to be god with the gift of eternal life was in reality a liar a cheat and a blasphemer and that sounds like strong terminology but if you think about it it's true because what did he claim and what did he allow his disciples to claim for him That this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Peter made that confession, as recorded in Matthew chapter 16, 16 through 18, Jesus didn't say, well, you know, that's not true. Jesus accepted that, in fact, commended Peter, did he not? Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven hath revealed it unto thee. So if Jesus was not the Christ, if Jesus is not the risen Savior, then everything he said was just, just a sham. So it's that point that we need to understand. So we ask the question, how do we know Jesus rose? Well, we know the same way we know all facts. That's by the evidence. And that's what we want to talk about for a little bit this evening. I'd like you to go first with me to Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. This is Luke writing by divine inspiration, continuing that gospel message which he had written. As he says in verse 1, But in verse 3, speaking of uh, Jesus, he says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Again, that's the King James Version. Maybe yours says something else. He showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. So Jesus was intent on making sure people understood that he had risen from the dead that this was not a specter that they were seeing that this was not uh, somebody who had just passed out in the tomb but somebody who had actually died and gone on and then came back so let's talk about proofs of the resurrection of christ first of all let's talk about the life of jesus go back with me to matthew chapter 12 verses 38 through 40 and point out the fact that jesus prophesied his own resurrection. This is Matthew chapter 12, 38 through 40. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, or Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly or the fish's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Again, in Matthew chapter 16, we referenced that a few minutes ago. But in verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. So Jesus himself is evidence or proof of the resurrection because he said he was going to rise from the dead. And folks, again, if he didn't, he wasn't a good man. He was a liar. And as extreme as that sounds that's just a fact he was a deceiver he was a cheat so this is evidence at least one piece of evidence that he rose from the dead because he pre- prophesied that he would then this comment from C.H. Uh, Robinson he said consider too the death of Christ in the light of his perfect life if that death was the close of a life so beautiful so remarkable so godlike we are faced with an insoluble mystery, the permanent triumph of wrong over right and the impossibility of believing in truth or justice in the world. In other words, the greatest human to ever walk the face of the earth, God in the flesh, if he was defeated by Satan, what hope do we have? If there was not enough power in God to raise him from the dead, what power do we have? We have none. So proof number two, And this is the one that I keep going back to as I consider the proofs of the resurrection that is the empty grave you see you've only got two alternatives when it comes to the empty grave one is the body was taken by human hands the other is there was uh, for lack of a better term supernatural power involved in taking that body or raising that one from the dead so let's consider these for a moment First of all, the body taken by human hands, could his friends have broken through the guard and taken the body? Let's go back to Matthew 27. And let's remember what the Jewish leadership did because they were aware that Jesus had said he was going to rise from the dead on the third day. So in Matthew 27, 62 through 66, we see that addressed. And they went to Pilate. And in verse 64, Command, therefore, they said to him, that the sepulcher may be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, saying to the people, he is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, you have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Over in Matthew 28, 11 through 15, this was after the resurrection, of course. Now when they were going, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. These are the Soldiers who were there at the tomb of Jesus, when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, "Say ye, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him to secure you." And they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So, option one: if the body is taken by hands, could his friends have done that? Well, the Roman guard had been posted. For all of the guards to be asleep and for those now what would be ten men if you just got the Apostles for them to roll away a great stone and then lay out burial clothes with not a single guard awaking would almost require the supernatural would it not which is what some actually deny so part number two of this human hands did they take the body from the grave well if his friends didn't do it would his enemies have done it could his enemies have done that My first question in regard to that is why would they? Because why did they set the guard out there to guard the tomb? Because they didn't want anybody taking the body out, at least until Sunday, right? And that way when it was over, when Sunday was over, they could do whatever they wanted to. They just wanted to make sure that the tomb had some body in it on Sunday morning. So they would not do that. And why would they go to the trouble they did? We just read Matthew 27 and 28. It would have been to the benefit of the Jewish leadership to keep the body there. Think about that for just a second. It's, uh, it's the day of Pentecost. Maybe they, let's just even imagine for a moment that the, the Jewish leadership had taken the body of Jesus and that they had just kind of kept it somewhere for this period of time before the Pentecost. And here's the day of Pentecost. Thousands of Jews are gathered around. Here comes Peter and the other apostles. And they begin giving this speech, giving this lesson about Jesus rising from the dead. You know Acts chapter 2, you've read that many times. Suppose Peter's up there and he's giving that sermon about Jesus being crucified and rising from the dead and being exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Can Can you think of a better way to stop what would become known as Christianity, can you think of a better way to stop it than to just go ahead and bring the dead body of Jesus and put it right out in the middle of the town and say, there he is. What are you people listening to Peter for? That would be the perfect way to do it, don't you think? You know why they didn't do that? They didn't have the body. That's the reason, because Jesus had risen from the dead. Why did the Jewish leadership never produce the body to stop the spread of Christianity? Why didn't they do it? Of course they wouldn't have done a Sabbath because they wanted to make sure they didn't violate the Sabbath but why didn't they do it after Sabbath was over why didn't they do it any single day after that up to Pentecost and even beyond why did they not produce the body of Jesus in order to stop Christianity they couldn't do it when you look and this was Edward Wharton said this he said all the references to the empty tomb are in the gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John none come in acts during the apostles ministry why this is a good point there are no references to the empty tomb in the Gospels, outside of the Gospels, because everyone knew the tomb was empty. The only question worth discussing was why it was empty and what that proved. Now I'll go back to Matthew 28, what we read just a little bit ago from 11 through 15, Matthew twenty-eight, eleven 11 through 15. Folks, the, the Jewish leaders to whom those Roman soldiers reported, they knew the tomb was empty, Right? They knew the tomb was empty now if they had stolen the body away or if the disciples had stolen the body away why would these Jewish leaders go to so much trouble you see what they did don't you look at that verse 14 verse 13 you go ahead and and you tell them those of you military folk in here I don't think you would want to be asleep on duty would you if you were on your guard if you were guarding I don't think it'd be a good thing for you to be asleep on your guard so that's what they tell the Roman soldiers to say to everybody we went to sleep and the disciples came and stole the body at night or while we were asleep that's what they told him to say in verse 13 but look they want to step further if the governor hears about this we'll bribe him so not only did they bribe, were they going to bribe the governor, but verse 12 says they bribed the soldiers too. Do you really have to bribe somebody to tell the truth? So you see, the truth was implied in this telling of this event here. Implied in this is the fact that these Roman soldiers came back and they told the truth to the Jewish leaders. They said just like we read in Luke's account. They said the tomb was empty. There was an angel who came and, and the tomb was, stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. That was the truth. And they were being bribed to lie about it. The tomb was empty. Great proof that Jesus had risen from the dead. Proof number three, the transformation of the disciples. Go back with me to Mark chapter 16. Let's think about the mindset of the disciples after the death of Jesus. In Mark chapter 16. Look in verses uh, 10 and 11. This is after the ladies had come back and they had seen the, the tomb was empty. It says in verse 10 of Mark 16 She went and told, that it is Mary Magdalene, went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. Well, what were they there doing? They were up there, they were, they were mourning the loss of the one who they thought was going to be their deliverer, their Messiah. They had been told that he was going to rise from the dead, but they didn't believe it, did they? Remember Peter's response when Jesus said he was going to be, be uh, crucified or he was going to be killed? Peter rebuked him for that. But in that same sentence, in that same passage, Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. Even when they ran to the tomb, as recorded in John chapter 20, Peter and John running to the tomb, and they looked inside, it was a puzzler to them because they were still not believing it. They still didn't grasp what was going on here, even though they had actually seen Jesus raise people from the dead, had they not? They had seen him raise people from the dead, Lazarus being one they fully didn't understand it at this point they weren't sure what was going on so with that in mind when the ladies come back and they say he's risen from the dead he's alive we've seen him their first response is we don't believe you they were there in despondency despair and doubt and yet what's happening when you come to Acts chapter 2 Acts chapter 1 we see Jesus has appeared to his disciples he's been doing that for several days after his resurrection He's ascended back to the Father's right hand. And now Acts chapter 2 comes and the Holy Spirit comes on the, the apostles. And they began to preach the word of God. And you do realize where they were preaching that word of God, correct? In the very bastion center of Judaism, the city of Jerusalem. And you also realize that they were in the vast minority, were they not? And yet, these men who just a few weeks earlier had been despondent, disbelieving, now, they were standing out there among potentially tens of thousands, maybe even more than that, of Jews who were gathered there for the Pentecost. And they're telling them, not only did Jesus rise from the dead, not only are they saying that, not only are they saying that Jesus rose from the dead as per the plan of God, the prophecies of God, Not only they're saying that, but they're saying you have taken him and you have crucified him. How do you explain that change like that? That's an incredible change, is it not? A change from despondency and doubt and despair to vigor and zeal. As you read on in the book of Acts, you come to Acts chapter four, chapter five, two occasions where those same disciples were, were brought in before the Jewish leadership. They were thrown into prison. At one point they were beaten. What'd they do after they were thrown into prison? Where'd they go after they got back out? What'd they do? They went out and preached again. What'd they do the next time they got brought in and they got beaten up? What'd they do? They did it again. They went out and preached. They just kept going. What was Peter's response? Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than men. How do you explain that? He explained it because they knew that they had seen the risen Savior. And they were confident that he had risen from the dead. Transformation of the disciples. How about this one? Proof number four, the existence of the primitive church. The church was founded on Christ, and the validity of his resurrection is seen in the first gospel sermon. We reference it. Let's go over there to Acts chapter 2 just for a moment and look at the components of this message that Peter gave. We won't take time to look at all of it. But as it specifically relates to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he talks about the fact that God had determined to do this. Verse 23 And ye have taken him by wicked hands, ye have crucified and slain. Verse 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he shall be held by it. He goes on to talk about the prophecy of David and about the statement being made that thou wilt not leave my soul in Hades. And he says, therefore, speaking of David, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, this is verse 30, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was now left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. And if you go back to verse 29, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us to this day. So it's not hard to imagine, get this picture in your mind, of of Peter preaching to the crowd in Jerusalem, referencing this this, um, prophecy from David, and then pointing up to the tomb where David was buried, where his body was buried. And saying he wasn't talking about himself. When he said, you will not leave my soul in Hades, neither will you allow my body to suffer corruption. His body is corrupting. His body is already corrupted. He's talking about Jesus. And that's when he says in verse 32, this Jesus has God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God hath raised up that made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's an amazing sermon to the point and yet extremely powerful. And again, keep in mind that he's talking to an audience of people who would have been there. They would have been there during the Passover and they would have stayed around for that period of time so they could be there for Pentecost they knew exactly what he was talking about that's why at one point they said men and brethren what shall we do they understood what he was talking about they had just murdered God's only begotten son what can we do about this Peter said repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins you should receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in verse 38 the gospel record is proof for the resurrection of Christ. Look in John chapter 20, verses 26 through 29. In John chapter 20, we won't take the time to read this, but this is one of the places where we read of Jesus' appearance. We'll talk about those more in just a moment. This is John chapter 20, 26 through 29, where Jesus had uh, appeared before his apostles after his death and burial and resurrection. In Luke 24, verses 36 and following. We read about him appearing to some men who were his disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. Again, we'll talk about this in a minute. How about Paul? Here's another proof of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul, who he says of himself in Philippians chapter 3, that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was one who was diligent and zealous for the law of God. He talked about that when he recounted his conversion in Acts chapter 22. He recalled how diligent, how zealous he had been for the cause of Judaism. In fact, we're even told, as we read in uh, Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, as we read about Paul's uh, vehement desire to destroy Christianity, how he haled down men and women, putting them into prison. And in fact, when he was told, when, when Ananias was told by the Lord to go and preach to Paul the gospel. Ananias said, I've heard many things about this man, and I know he's here to take Christians in prison. So Paul had a major change in his life, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. For I deliver unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. How, again, how do you explain that? How do you explain that such a dramatic change in an individual who is not just, again, an average Jew who was a major proponent of Judaism? Commentator named Kennett said this, he said, within a few years of the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus was in the mind at least of one man of education, absolutely irrefutable. Surely common sense requires us to believe that for which Paul so suffered was in his eyes established beyond the possibility of doubt. Folks, you don't die for a lie. Paul risked his life on a daily basis I go all the way back to uh acts chapter 9 and read about right after he was converted what happened what they do they came after him right so that he had to be let down over the wall in the basket and it was that's the way it was continually as you read for instance in acts chapter 17 he's got he's got groups of jewish leaders all they're doing is traveling around following him wherever paul is we're going to cause trouble And they just kept following him around, following him around. How do you explain such a change in a man like that? Proof number seven, the grave clothes. Look in John chapter 20, verses five through seven. John chapter 20, verses five through seven. Speaking of of John... It says he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying yet when he not in then cometh Peter Simon Peter following him and went to the sepulcher and see if the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes but wrapped together in the place by itself If you were going to rent ra- I'm not putting any ideas in your heads okay But if you were going to ransack something and you had to do so in a hurry if you were going to break in somebody wanted to break into a house And they knew that they had to get in they had to get out they're not going to go back and put down they knocked the lamp over they're not going to go back and put it back gently where it was right they're not going to carefully go back and and fix up everything that they knocked down so if you have a group of people who are going into a tomb and they're going to ransack the tomb and take the body out they're certainly not going to carefully lay the grave clothes back which is exactly what happened here. They were not scattered about in the same position, but in the same position, they were placed carefully, not hurriedly. Again, Edward Wharton said this. He said, if Jesus were not raised from the dead, who was it who silently rolled back the stone without the guards knowing it, unwrapped the body of Jesus, then rewrapped the grave clothes with such skill that eyewitnesses could not catch the deception, and finally carried away the body, all without being detected. If you can believe that, You can believe the resurrection. Good point. Proof number eight, the third day. Back in John chapter two, verses 13 through 22. Jesus has said, and we won't read all that, but we'll come down to uh, verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up they thought he was talking about this physical temple verse 21 says he spoke of the temple of his body the third day being the significant day in which Jesus rose from the dead in which the church now meets as per a New Testament example rather than on a Sabbath so the third day is another proof but in spite of the clear evidence there are those who offer objections and I'll only give you a few of them just because I thought these were some of the more prominent ones that I had read. And they may seem a little strange to you, but there are apparently people who who want to believe this because they don't want to believe the resurrection. So one objector said this. He said, the disciples so much wanted to see Jesus, they made themselves think he rose. In other words, they merely had a hallucination. Well, the problem with that is, first of all, they did not expect to see him. Another problem is they didn't believe when they first they were first told he'd risen and they still got to deal with an empty tomb how'd that tomb get empty see that's what i that's the one i keep coming back to how did the tomb get empty so another argument goes like this it was not a literal physical resurrection but merely a mental rexure- resurrection i don't even know how you do that it was not a literal physical resurrection but merely a mental resurrection again It doesn't explain the empty tomb and it doesn't explain the change in the Apostles and then there's this one the disciples saw his glorified spirit again that's a little hard to understand what exactly they're saying but that would still be a miracle and still don't explain the empty tomb it it wouldn't explain the holes it wouldn't explain a lot of things it wouldn't explain him eating food with them after his resurrection so there are a lot of holes in that. Do you know that I read, I can't remember the, the person's name, but uh, it was uh, <clears throat> a Muslim teacher who said that uh, it wasn't really Jesus who died on the cross. He said that what happened is up to the cross it was Jesus, then on the cross, when put up on the cross, that God switched Jesus with Judas and put Judas up there instead and Jesus got away and then basically changed Judas's face so he looked like Jesus. Okay. Again, folks, you know, to what extent will people go to deny truth? The evidence is clear. The tomb was empty. So let's talk about what that means. First of all, I've got several verses here. Let's look in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. Let's talk about what the resurrection means. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The resurrection is the power behind Christianity. That's why we can stand so strong and firm in our conviction and our knowledge of the truth, because of the resurrection. It is the power of God. Secondly, Romans 1 and verse four. Let's look there, Romans 1 and verse four, asking the question, what does Jesus' resurrection mean to us? Romans 1 and verse four. Another, it's another indication that Jesus is deity that he was declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. again, it just affirmed his deity as he did many times when he was here in the flesh. John 11 and verse 25. What does Jesus' resurrection mean to us? John 11 and verse 25, where Jesus is talking to the sisters of dead Lazarus. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And remember when we talked about the, uh, the use of the emphatic verb when Jesus would talk about himself sometimes, where he would literally say, I, I am, just like God did when he identified himself to Moses. Moses said in Exodus chapter 3, who shall I tell Israel to send me? And God said, "I tell him I, I am has sent you. And Jesus used that same terminology to identify himself as deity. That's what he does here too. Jesus said unto her, I, I am, the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. First Peter one, verses three and four. Our point being here is we're asking the question, what does Jesus' resurrection mean to us? It means that we have hope for victory over the grave because of Jesus' victory over the grave. First Peter one, verses three and four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. And that is not a way reserved in heaven for you. Folks, that very clearly says that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no hope. And not only does he say we have a lively, er, we have a hope, he says we have a lively hope. We have a living hope. It's not across your fingers and hope and wish. And maybe just by chance, maybe, oh, I hope I get into heaven. I hope I just squeak in there. It's a living hope. It is a full hope. It is an assurance. It is, an, it is a confidence. It's not an arrogance. It is a confidence. It is an assurity. And that's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you look in 2 Peter, it just made me think of another passage. 2 Peter 1, verse 11, where he's talking about what we sometimes refer to as the Christian graces, talking about adding these things. If you do these things, you shall never fall. In verse 10, he says, but then verse 11 says, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I've got exactly two minutes, probably. I've got... 15 minutes left to finish class, but I need to veer off for just a minute or two here because I want to say this. Somewhere in the psyche of, yes, even our brotherhood, some have gotten the idea that we can't know that we're saved, that saying such a thing is either arrogant or a belief in the one saved always saved doctrine. May I urge you to read 1 John. May I urge you to think about these passages that we read this evening, about the surety and the hope and the confidence that we have in our salvation because of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter says what well, we just read in 2 Peter chapter 1, that we need to continue to be faithful and grow in these things, because that's when he says, if you do these things, you shall never fall, and then an entrance shall be administered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. So we need to be faithful, but folks, we can have confidence. When we studied the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Jude, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we talked about that. The fact that we can know that we're saved, being doing such, is not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's a confident, quiet peace that we enjoy, peace that passes all understanding. So that's my soapbox. But it just it it bothers me when I say Christians talking about, well, I hope when I get to stand before God in judgment, I hope I've done enough. Guess what? You didn't. And you never will but you can still go be with God in eternity through the blood of Jesus Christ yes you're expected to be faithful yes we're expected to grow and to grow into maturity but we can have that confidence and know that we're in Christ the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our sins first John chapter 1 7 through 9 if we walk in the light as he is in the light okay 1 Corinthians 15, let's finish up this section about what does Jesus' re- resurrection mean to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is how important this is. So without the resurrection, if there is no resurrection, verse 14, without the resurrection, the gospel preaching is worthless. If Christ be not risen, our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. So secondly, not only is the preaching worthless, but your faith is worthless. If there is no resurrection, what are you doing here? Why are you, why are you, spending, time, why are you spending time with this? Why are you praying? Why are you trying to teach others? Why are you, if there is no resurrection, your faith is empty. That's how important this is. If there is no resurrection, the apostles were false witnesses. Verse 15, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be the dead rise not. Again, our faith is worthless. In verse 17, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are, ooh, look at the rest of that. You are yet in your sins. There is not a person in this room, if Jesus did not rise from the dead there is not a person in this room who is saved. That's what he just said. If Christ be not risen from the dead your faith is worthless and you are still in sin. Verse 18. If Christ without the resurrection those who died in faith are perished then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And I don't know about you, there's a lot of great blessings in this world, a lot of things that I'm thankful for on a daily basis. But I sure am looking forward to getting to be with God. And each tick of the clock gets that much closer home. Now, without the resurrection of Christ, we are, of all your version might say, we are to be pitied because we're under a grand illusion. Again, Alfred Edersheim said, if the story of his birth be true, we can believe that of his resurrection. If that of his resurrection be true, we can believe that of his birth. In the nature of things, the latter was incapable of strict historical proof. In the nature of things, his resurrection demanded and was capable of the fullest historical evidence. It's true. And we can have that confidence that we serve. We sing the song, do we not? I serve a risen Savior. We sing about the living Savior. We do so with confidence and assurance. So next time we sing one of those songs about the risen Savior, sing it with a full heart. Because it's true. And it's the reason that you and I have optimism. In a world of pessimism, in a world of darkness, we have light. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, with time we have left, let me just reference these quickly. We've got 12, 11, excuse me, 10. I'll get the number right in a second. We've got 10 records of Jesus' appearances after his resurrection. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're already there. And Paul talks about the fact that he was buried. Verse four, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, he was seen of Cephas or Peter then of the 12. After that, he was seen of about 500 brethren at once. So he was seen, verse seven, after that he was seen of James and of all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Jesus was seen, we know about his ascension, Acts chapter one, nine through 11, uh, that the apostles watched him go up. Uh, the angels told him, why are you continuing to stare into heaven? Just as he left, he's going to come again. So that's what we look forward to now. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord, but we also do what? We also show forth our faith in his return. Now, with that in mind, with the few minutes we have left, let's just talk about this. Where is Jesus now? Go back with me to Daniel chapter 7 as we talk about Jesus now. Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. These are two integral passages that have to do with the role of Jesus. In Daniel chapter seven, the prophecy of Daniel, beginning in verse 13. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. In the context of these verses, Daniel is again seeing visions of four beasts, which when we study Daniel, we know that they represent four different kingdoms, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman Empire. It was during the time of the fourth beast, the Roman Empire, that the one like the Son of Man would be given dominion and a glory and glory and a kingdom. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice. In verse 13, the one like the Son of Man came with the clouds and came to the Ancient of Days. It doesn't say he came from him. It says that he came to him. There is an important reference there, which we'll talk about in just a second. If we have, Hopefully we have time to cover it. This kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So we ask the question, what happened to Jesus after his resurrection? Well, we already know that. We've talked about that to, some, to a great extent. The question now is after he ascended back to heaven, what happened at that point? Remember, here's what Daniel said. Let's get it one more time. I saw one like the Son of Man come with the clouds of heaven, came to the Ancient of Days. They brought him near before him. There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. What happened when Jesus ascended back to the Father's right hand? First Peter 1 and verse 21 says that he was given glory, 1 Peter 1 and verse 21, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. What did Daniel say was going to happen? He said that he would be given glory. In Acts chapter 2, 30 through 36, in Peter's sermon, he said that he was exalted. He was at the right hand of God, exalted. What did Daniel say was going to happen when that one came to the Ancient of Days? He said he would be exalted. That's exactly what happened. He was also to be given dominion in the kingdom according to Daniel's prophecy. In Matthew 28:18, Jesus said of Jesus, or Jesus said of himself, all authority or all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 27, he was given the kingdom. These are all things that Daniel prophesied were going to happen and all things that did happen. So where is he now? What does he do now? Jesus, I've got four things that I've, see in the New Testament that he continues to function as number one he is the king and as the king he is the lawmaker maybe that's two points but he is the king he is the king in his kingdom premillennialism says he is a kingdom in potentia kind of like what's his name over there in England he's not the real king but when his grandma dies I guess he'll be king right or his mom dies or whatever it is that's that's all I know about British monarchy right there but those youngsters are kings in potentia, not in actuality. Jesus is king in actuality. As per premillennialism, that believes that he is yet to be crowned king. The Bible indicates otherwise. For Ephesians 1 verse 13 talks about, excuse me, Colossians 1 verse 13 talks about people in the first century being translated into the kingdom of his dear son. The kingdom has been in existence since the day of Pentecost. He is the king and he is the lawmaker. We are under law to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9 21 his law his word will judge us in the last day John 12 and verse 48 but not only is Jesus the king and the lawmaker he is our high priest again there's so much more to say about that but because of the fact that he is high priest and the fact that we are priests ourselves first Peter 2 and verse 9 means that we can go to the Father through him and find the grace to help in time of need, as the writer said in Hebrews chapter 4. He is our mediator, mediator between God and man, First Timothy 2 and verse 5. A mediator is a go-between, one who stands between two parties with the goal of bringing about peace. The term translated mediator in First Timothy 2, verse 5, is also used to describe one who is a guarantor or a surety for something. Thus, Jesus brings about peace, and his death also guaranteed or assured the terms of his new covenant. Jesus is the guarantor that those promises that were made through the new covenant are going to be kept to us. Furthermore, not only is our mediator, he is our advocate. The only time that term is used is in 1 John 2 and verse 1. It is defined as this, one who pleads another's cause, used in a court of justice to denote a legal assistant or counsel for the defense. Jesus is our king, our lawgiver, our high priest, our mediator, and our advocate. And one more point, Hebrews 10 and verse 26. says, Hebrews 10, 26 says, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. In other words, because Jesus is all-encompassing. Jesus is all-encompassing. all is complete in him if we reject him as the Savior God is not going to send another sacrifice for us there remains no more sacrifice for sin but a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries that's what verse 27 says therefore we want to obey the Lord we want to obey Jesus we want to follow his word faithfully obeying it to become Christians and then following him faithfully to walk with him as Christians. Thank you for your time. Let's all bow together as we pray. Our Father, we are thankful unto you this evening that you love us and that you bless us. Father, we're thankful for the price that Jesus paid for us. We know that he did it out of sheer love for us. We know that you gave him out of your love for us. And we know, Father, that it's because of him and because of the gospel, because of our obedience to your will, that the blood of Christ cleanses us and gives us the hope of being with you in eternity. We're so grateful, Father, for resurrection. We look forward to our own. We look forward to being with you in eternity. May we look around us and realize that there are many, many in our, in our neighborhoods, in our families, at jobs, and schools who don't have the same hope that we do. May we look at them and have compassion on them as Jesus would. and May we seek to bring them to you thankful for loving us and providing for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.